Okay. Very good. Got it. All right. If you have your Bible, uh, turn to Mark chapter 1. That's in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark. Mark chapter 1. There's Bibles all around. Uh, If you don't have one of your own, feel free to grab one of those. And we've been uh, in the Gospel of Mark. I think this is our fourth week or fifth week. And... um, We've mainly what we've been trying to do is to answer the question from the Gospel of Mark, who is Jesus? And so we will continue to answer that every single week. That's going to be the main kind of topic and framework for for the for the sermons. So every single week we're going to do that. Who is Jesus? And and hopefully shedding more and more light on that for us, even as believers, even if we've been a believer for a long time or or if we're not a believer, it's we still need that that question answered for us. We still need that clarity. So that's what we've been trying to do over the past um, few weeks, and we'll continue to do so. So look with me there at Mark chapter one. We're looking at verses 21 through 28 today. So Mark writes. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that um, we have your word. We have it freely before us. Um, God, I, I know that uh, I know just for myself that I take it for granted that I have your word so freely. And and so, God, I pray that you would um, uh, forgive us of having that kind of mindset. Forgive us for just thinking that this can always be at our hand, that it will always be there. But um, even your word reminds us that you can take this word away in an instance. And so, God, I just pray that we would take full advantage whenever we have an opportunity to be in your word, to, to be delighted by it, to grow in it, um, to be convicted by it, to be challenged by it. God, we pray that you would do all of that um, right now. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So words uh, cover us every single day. We speak words, we write words, we type words, we sing words, we read words. We love to hear the first words of our children. We, uh, if you've ever taught someone to read, you know what an incredible joy it is to, to begin to teach, um, whether it's a child or, 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 or an adult even, and you begin to see them begin to, to take those letter sounds and they begin to put those sounds together and create words and create sentences, and then they begin reading books, and it's a great joy to see that. And we value words so much in our country that we've uh, made it a freedom that's protected by our government. The freedom of speech is something we all have a right to. We have men and women who fight for these freedoms 
for us. It's a serious thing. So because of this, we have all sorts of words that fly at us from every single angle. Now, I couldn't, it's almost impossible to pin down the exact number of books published in the United States every year, but it's somewhere between 600,000 and 2 million books that are published just in the United States alone. So if you make, if your book makes it, if any of you are planning on writing, and your book makes it to the New York best, uh, bestseller list, New York Times bestseller list, you are doing really well. Because out of 2 million books, your book has been noticed. So it's a lot of words. The average novel is about 80,000 words long. The average person speaks about 7,000 words a day. Some of you may speak more than that. Some of you less. Podcasts, news outlets, co-workers, classmates, TV shows, friends, family members, all of them are speaking words to you almost daily. And these words shape you in ways that you may or may not even realize. And so in addition to all of these words, from all of these different, uh, these different avenues, we have the words of the Bible that we read every week. And it's no wonder because of all of these podcasts and co-workers and friends and family members who speak all of these other words, it's no wonder that we wrestle with the truth of Scripture. Or we have a hard time believing what it says. Or, or even, even believing that it's reliable or true. Because we have so many things, so many other words coming at us. But our text today is, is going let to us, let us in on why these words of the Bible are truer and more potent than all of the words spoken in the world. And we'll see that in the three reactions that Jesus' words provoke within his audience. And so that first reaction is one of amazement or astonishment, whichever it says in your worship guide. Look at verses 21 and 22. Mark records for us, And they went into Capernaum, says Jesus and his disciples, they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So we see right there, after, after calling his, after, last week we saw after Jesus calls his disciples. So now after calling his disciples, the first place that Jesus goes is to the center of religious life in Galilee, the place called the synagogue. This is the center of worship. This is a center for, for pretty much all of the activity of any town that had a synagogue. The synagogue was where it was at. And so this is where Jesus goes directly after calling his disciples. But he doesn't go as a normal congregant. He's not going to visit churches to see where he's going to worship with his disciples. Jesus goes as a teacher. And it's his teaching that is acknowledged here. But if you notice, Mark doesn't tell us what Jesus taught. There's nothing there that says this is exactly what he taught. This is his three-point outline. This is why the people were astonished. We can only assume that he probably taught the same thing he taught in, in chapter 1, verse 15, which is the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. But what Jesus taught in the synagogue is not what Mark wants us to see this time. 
We'll get to that point at some at some time in the near future. But Mark wants us to focus on the reactions that Jesus' teaching called forth. And this first reaction is one of astonishment. So, picture yourself going through the religious motions of the day of, of first century Judaism. You're walking to synagogue with your family. You're expecting to hear the same rabbi read from the same scrolls and then just go home and have your lunch or do whatever you need to do. But instead of the rabbi that day, you have this new guy. And he's kind of wandered into your midst. He's got these smelly fishermen with him. We can only assume that they just came right off the boat and they went right directly to the synagogue at, at some, in some way. And he comes wandering in, and, you're, and he begins teaching. He's not just kind of hanging out. He begins teaching, and the teaching sounds familiar to you, but it sounds slightly different. There's a little bit of a different angle to this man's teaching. There's a little, little bit of an edge that you haven't quite heard before in the way that this man is presenting the truth of the Bible. He's making, he's saying things that make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Things that sound way too good to be true. Things almost that sound a little bit dangerous. He's walking pretty closely to kind of calling himself God. And this leaves you amazed. It leaves you astonished. It leaves you spellbound. And this, is, this just isn't the, the bedazzlement of, of a guest preacher either that's just kind of come in to kind of hype the crowd up. In verse uh, 22, Mark records his audience making a very precise observation about Jesus' teaching. It says that he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. He taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, this is the first time that Mark uses the word authority in his gospel, and it's a really important word. So we, we need to look a little bit deeper at this word, because remember, Mark means to show us the audience reaction. And the audience reaction is what is giving us a picture of who Jesus is. It's giving us a little bit more detail to uh, the description uh, that Mark is trying to paint for us about Jesus. So this word authority here literally means out of the original stuff. So if you have one of your Mark journals or you just like writing in your Bible, you can circle that and write that out to the side. Out of the original stuff. Now this phrase has the same root as the word author does. So the way that the, the, the synagogue audience is hearing Jesus' teaching was out of the original stuff. They were hearing it right out of the Old Testament scriptures. So rather than deriving authority from others like the scribes, so when the scribes taught, they, weren't, they were not teaching like Jesus was teaching. They were not teaching like even how I'm teaching. They would just pull the scrolls out, they would read it, they would read some commentary on it from other uh, authority figures, and then they would roll it back up and put it away, and that would be it. But what Jesus came in doing was teaching as if he was the author of these words. And we know that he is the author of these words. So Jesus' listeners 
heard his message as if it was coming from the original author. That's the way they were hearing it. That's the way their ears perked up to it. This man is saying something different. And they were left dumbfounded by this. Now, to show the reader that Jesus' teaching was not just fanfare, that it wasn't just emotionalism and excitement because there was this new teacher in town, Mark is going to confirm for us Jesus' authority when he, as he introduces us to the second reaction in verses 23 through 26. So look there with me at those verses. So, so Jesus teaches, and, and Mark says, And immediately after Jesus' teaching, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Now, just so you know, this this scene that just took place, they are still within the synagogue. They did not go outside. This wasn't some crazy man that was standing outside on the street corner yelling at passerbys. This man was in the synagogue right alongside the other worshipers. And it's not until he hears Jesus' words of authority that he snaps and begins to yell at Jesus and begins to challenge Jesus. So in the midst of this synagogue congregation, along with everyone else, is a demon-possessed man. So let that sink in a minute. Because just as a side note, I just want to say, you never know who is sitting amongst us in these walls. And we also have to to realize that the battle, the spiritual battle that we kind of think sometimes is make-believe and we don't really interact with that as much in America because we have so many other distractions, the spiritual battle that is taking place is raging right within these four walls as we speak. And that's what's happening in the synagogue right now. So you have this demon-possessed man He's, he's, he's triggered by Jesus' uh, words of authority, the gospel that Jesus is proclaiming. And I can just say, this, this man is, is way more distracting than any of these babies. If we have all of these babies in here at the exact same time, and they all just decide to lose it at the same time, this demon-possessed man beat them all. Like This was a huge ordeal. This isn't something that happened every day in the synagogue. So I'm sure if this happened in most churches today in America, that half the people in attendance that day would not go back to that church because of safety and security reasons. And then they would give a one-star Google review to that church and say, man, they have crazy people up in that place. But for Mark, this is like the prime opportunity to solidify Jesus' authority. Because this isn't Mark speaking. This isn't, this isn't Luke necessarily speaking. This is a demon speaking about the truth and reality of Jesus. So for his purposes, the fear that's experienced by the demon confirms uh, the authority Jesus exudes in his proclamation. Jesus says, I have this authority 
And then the demon comes alongside with his reaction and confirms it. He's confirming Jesus' originalness. I'm speculating here, but I seriously doubt the demon would have got up and challenged the rabbi of the day. But he challenged Jesus. So to show that Jesus' words are not just authoritative, but that Jesus himself is the authority. Jesus is the author of these words that he proclaims. So in ironically enough, in verse 24, the one who sheds the most light on the question, who is Jesus, up to this point, besides God, is a demon. So verse 24, look there with me. The demon says this to Jesus. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So Jesus' words pose a real threat to the demonic world. Why? Why do they pose this threat? Well, it's because they're seeing their very real defeat in the flesh. In this man named Jesus, they are seeing their defeat. They are seeing the Old Testament prophecies come true in Christ. And they are terrified. So notice that the demon asks, he asks, the way he responds, he asks two questions. And then he makes a response about Jesus. And so his response to Jesus' words show us that he knows way more about Jesus and Jesus' authority than anybody else in the synagogue. This demon knows all, and he's telling all. So if you're familiar with the, uh, the book of James, you'll know, you'll be familiar with, hopefully, chapter 2, verse 19. And you can just jot that down and look at it later. But James tells his readers, he says, You believe that God is one, you do well. But even the demons believe, and they shudder. They're fearful. And this is the case for our demon here in Mark chapter 1. He knows, he believes intellectually, he knows exactly who Jesus is. You're Jesus of Nazareth. Essentially saying, you are a real person in real space and in real time and in real history. You're Jesus of Nazareth. But you're also at the same time the Holy One of God. And then he knows exactly what Jesus has the power to do. You are the destroyer. Are you going to destroy me right now? And this elicits fear in this demon. And because he knows he stands literally toe-to-toe with the God of the universe at this point in time. And so we see in verses 25 and 26, with words, Jesus says, be silent and come out of him. Be silent and come out of him. And Jesus does away with the demon. So what this does, you can see that Mark is not focusing in on the one who has, who has uh, had the demon exercised from him. He's not even considering that person. What Mark wants us to see and what what Mark wants to show us is Jesus' authority in word. So he spoke words of authority, but also in his deeds, also in his work. 
over both the spiritual and the physical realm. Jesus is uh, showing us his authority. Now, by way of application, we have to see what this interaction teaches us. And what it teaches us is that mere intellectual assent about God is not enough for you. It's not. It's not enough for anybody. Now, I do think intellectual assent is important. I think you should read. I think you should learn. I think you should grow in that way. But as a believer, it is not enough just to know. Okay? So that was the point that James was trying to make to his audience in James chapter 2. So he, could, he was saying it something like this. Oh, you believe God is one? You believe in the Trinity? You believe uh, that, that this, is, this is all true and right? That's great. You're doing well in that. You have good theology, right theology. You're Calvinist. You, you know, you got all those things down pat. I don't know if they were Calvinist. You have all those things down pat. You believe what the Bible is teaching about who God is, but even the demons believe all that. And when they learn about this, and when they're reflecting upon these things, they are fearful. They shudder. So the demons believe everything in the Bible is true. Everything. They would not deny you Jesus' words. They would not deny the words of the Scripture. They would say, no, all those words are true. They're all true. And they've come true in Christ. They believe every point of our statement of faith. Every point. They would not deny our sound theology. This is the reason they're fearful. It's because they know the right answer to the question, who is Jesus? He said it for us. He's the Holy One of God. The demon says this. He's fully man and fully God, is what the demon tells us. He's the snake destroyer. He's the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. He's the one who has come to save his people from Satan, sin, and death. They know this to be true. This is not a game for them. So, if the demons know this to be true, and they believe it, not for salvation, but they believe it to be true, and they know it, and you say you know it to be true, and you believe it, What's the difference between you and a demon? You've probably never asked yourself that question, nor have I. But what's the difference between you and a demon if you have similar beliefs? Well, I would say it's the way in which we obey God. So notice in verse 27, the synagogue audience observes that the demon obeys Jesus. So... So we see that, that, that they're, they're, they're kind of ranting about or, or raving about Jesus' teaching. He says, he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Well, the only reason, reason the unclean spirits are obeying Jesus is because they are powerless uh, to, to, do the, to do the other. They have to do it, and they have to obey out of fear. But as, the, as disciples of Jesus... We obey out of love for our Heavenly Father. God tells His people throughout the Scriptures to hear His Word and obey it. 
1 Samuel 15, 22, after uh, the major screw-up of King Saul, he says to him, To obey me is better than sacrifice. And then our friend James, again, in James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, he says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. But sadly, sometimes I think... We're no better than the Jews we heard about in Ezekiel 33. Where it says, my people come to you as they usually do. So think Sunday gathering. This is what we usually do. My people come to you as they usually do. And they sit before you to listen to your words. So think the preaching of the word. They sit before you to listen to your words. But they do not put them into practice. So to the Jews in Ezekiel's day, Ezekiel was nothing more than a singer with a beautiful voice. He was an entertainer to them. They came to hear his beautiful words because they had no intentions of putting into practice what they heard. The uh, late author Jerry Bridges wrote, he says, Too often today we listen to be entertained instead of instructed to be moved emotionally rather than moved to obedience. Now, some of you here today may be here out of mere duty. Like, you know it's Sunday. You're a good Southerner. You get, I mean, I say you get up. It's 4 o'clock in the afternoon, unless you got up from a nap. You, you come here, you drag yourself here, and you're just here out of duty, and you have no intentions of ever looking at this passage again much less applying it to your life. But let me just warn you. Don't confuse showing up on a Sunday and sitting in a chair with everybody else and humming some hymns out and doing the what looks like the Christian thing. Don't confuse that with being a disciple of Jesus. There are thousands who sit in buildings in our city week after week listening to gospel words, listening to men who who labor uh, for for hours during the week to to present to them the the words of, 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 of God through the scriptures and through the preaching. There are thousands of people who sit under that, who have no intentions of ever obeying the Bible. None. But I can tell you, if you were to approach them in Starbucks or to approach them after lunch or at lunch after church on a Sunday and you were to say, are you a Christian? Without hesitation, their answer would be yes. When really, in reality, they're more in line with the philosophy of demons than with biblical Christianity. Now they, those I just talked about, and maybe some of you would do well to react in the final way we see in our text, which is through questioning. Look at verses 27 through 28. 
And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So to this point, Jesus' audience is still in a state of astonishment. They are, they are just amazed at everything that is happening to them on this Sabbath day. And even more so at this point, they've, they've heard the authoritative words of Jesus. And then they get to see the authoritative words of Jesus in action where he's casting out this demon and going to battle right before their very eyes. And now they are left questioning in verse 27. What is this? What is this? And the way they answer it is not uh, uh, like in a negative way. They answer it to say like this teaching is authoritative. It's so authoritative that it is casting out demons. It's a new teaching. This is new as they answer their own question. But let me just say that questioning is not a negative undertaking. Now, it's not a negative undertaking only if you are okay with the answer you may not like. So sometimes we like to ask questions, but we want the answer to be what we thought the answer should be, and then we get upset when it's not. You know those types of people. So we, it's, questioning is not negative as long as we're okay that the answer may not be what we like. Or it may be, a, it may be an answer that will make you uncomfortable. It may be an answer that will kind of push you out of your own comfort and security. Or it may be an answer that leaves you with more questions than it does answers. And you have to continue to investigate and continue to kind of dig. I love Romans chapter 11. Um, so Romans chapter 11 is a good example of this, I think. It's after Paul Uh, finishes explaining this complicated doctrine of election. You think we have a a difficult time trying to explain election now? Paul had a really difficult time as well. So he's, he's talking about the Gentiles being grafted into this branch, the same branch as the Jews, and some of the Jews will be cut off, but if they repent, they can come back and be grafted back into this branch. And then those who were once enemies... Uh, to God are now considered the beloved of God. They're now God's children. And those who once didn't receive mercy are now receiving mercy. And on and on and on it goes. And Paul is explaining all of this. And then he closes with verses 33 through 36. And I think this is wonderful. Paul says, overwhelmed by the greatness of God, overwhelmed with with the, the reality that Paul is saying, look, I cannot get my mind around God, and I never will. And this is how he closes. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Period. That's how Paul ends that. Now you may be experiencing this or notice this in your missional community. 
We're walking through the story of God. A lot of us have never walked through an overview of the scriptures and and seen some of the details that are there that you may miss just in a general kind of reading of the scriptures. But if you may have noticed this already, I know it happens in our missional community a lot, is how prone we are to speculation. How prone we are to kind of fill in the gaps and to read between the lines and to wonder, which is totally fine. But even as we look at the Bible in a simple way, we are left sometimes with more questions than we are answers. And that's okay. That's what Paul is getting at here. How how big God is that we are never going to figure out God. We're never going to do that. And that's okay. You don't want a God that you can figure out. You don't want that. And it's okay as long as we remember at the end of the day that all the promises of God have their yes and amen in Christ alone. That he's the thread that we're holding on to. He's the thread that's always pulling us back. That's Christ alone. So he's the answer to every question the scriptures provoke. He's the answer to every doubt we will have or currently have. Because you will have them. And I love this in uh, Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. He offers both uh, an encouraging and challenging word to those of us who doubt. And I say us because I'm in that category as well. But he writes this first part to believers here. He says, a faith without doubts, or you could say a faith without questions, is like a human body without any antibodies in it. Believers should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts, not only their own, but their friends' and their neighbors' doubts as well. It's no longer sufficient to hold beliefs just because you inherited them. Only if you struggle long and hard with objections to your faith will you be able to provide grounds for your beliefs to skeptics, including yourself, that are plausible rather than ridiculous or offensive. So I'll say this to parents, be encouraged and try not to freak out. Try not to be terrified when your child comes. And when I say when they will come questioning all of your long held beliefs that you find so precious and dear. They will begin to ask those questions if they haven't already. I would say to that, be encouraged. That is God at work in your child or in your children. And then take that hard road and investigate those questions and those doubts with them, pointing them back to the scriptures. It's a fun exercise, and I would encourage you to do that. So what we're doing when we do that is we are questioning and doubting by faith. It's exactly what we're doing. We're questioning and doubting by faith. So we don't, we don't leave our questions and doubts without answers. So if we have a question or a doubt leaving here today, we want to run that question down. We want to run that doubt down. And as we do that, we will grow in our faith. And so if you're approached or challenged at work, as some of you are, with spiritual questions and people are challenging you on those particular things, You need to run those questions down. If you have to say, look, I don't know, but I'll get back to you on that. And you run that question down. You run that doubt down. You run that challenge down. And you bring it back to that person, pointing them to the word of God. 
Mark does this for us, his readers, that when this question is asked by the, the, synagogue, the synagogue audience, what is this? They answer their own question. The only way that they can answer is this is a new teaching with authority. A new teaching with authority. It's a teaching from the very author himself. He may not rec- they may not recognize that clearly now, but they know that this is different. This is a different teaching, and it is powerful. So this wasn't just another Sabbath day for these synagogue uh, attendees. All of their wonderings, all of their questions, all of their doubts are finally being answered by this man who just wandered into their midst. His words cut through all the words of their teachers, cut through all the words of their histories and their traditions, and Mark tells us his fame spreads throughout the land. The kingdom has come, and nothing, not even death, can stop it. Amen. Let me pray for us. King Jesus, help us to hear your words through all the other words of this world. Be the answer to all of our wonderings, all of our doubts, and all of our questions. And may we always find our yes and amen in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.